Hello and welcome to Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Chaffers. Today, a story about product development and food marketing. You may be thinking, oh, he's going to stick it to the food industry again. But you'd be wrong. This is about taking a food people don't like and don't even know they need, and slowly, slowly, over about 25 years, building demand, meeting supply, and improving health into the bargain which was the whole point. The food in question is orange-fleshed sweet potato. It's a poster child for the idea of biofortification, increasing the nutritional content of the diet by breeding the ingredients to deliver better nutrition in addition to calories and protein. And if you're thinking, well, what's so special about sweet potatoes that are orange, that might be because you're not in Africa. At my local greengrocer, all the sweet potatoes are orange. But across most of sub-Saharan Africa, till very recently, almost all the sweet potatoes had white or pale yellow flesh. And the difference is huge in all kinds of ways. To learn more, I spoke to Jan Lowe. She's currently a principal scientist for the International Potato Center and based in Nairobi. But back in the mid-1990s in Kenya, she was a freshly minted PhD in agricultural economics with, and this is the crucial part, a minor in nutrition. She was working in a project to find better sweet potato varieties for farmers in East Africa. At that point in time, we were doing what we called the best bet strategy. They were breeding around the world and they'd bring in the best uh, different varieties to be tested in East Africa to see what might perform better than the local varieties. You know, we'd be out in the field with farmers and maybe 40 different varieties. And I, I recognized that there were some orange ones in the introduced material. And I pointed out to my breeding colleagues that, look, you have these amazing varieties that have high levels of beta carotene, and please look at the statistics for sub-Saharan Africa. The statistics in question, vitamin A deficiency. Vitamin A is what's called a micronutrient. You don't need much of it, but it's absolutely vital for a healthy life. And lack of vitamin A is really serious, especially in young children. Across the continent as a whole, almost half the children under five were deficient and in some places the level was as high as 70%. It was a major killer of young children. And orange sweet potatoes, as Jan Lowe recognized, were orange because they were rich in beta-carotene, which the body turns into vitamin A. So what did the breeders say? The response was, well, here the preferences, you know, for white flesh or yellow flesh varieties, and they're going to get thrown out. But what we recognized and noticed was actually people loved the color. The issue with the varieties was the texture. Because for whatever reason, the varieties that have evolved uh, over time in Africa through basically, you know, local selection procedures since the 16th century have been very, what we call high dry matter. So if you look at the United States, our orange flesh varieties have a dry matter of 18 to 22 percent. 
and adult African consumers consider them to be watery. Now, when we tried those varieties with young children in Africa, they loved them, but the adults hated them, okay, because they thought they were watery. Mm -hmm. So what became very apparent over time uh, is that what we had to work towards in a breeding program uh, was to really raise the dry matter content in orange flesh varieties. And as we were out in the field, actually what sped up the process, which is a very interesting story, is we did find what we call some local farmer land races, which were orange flushed. And some of those local land races already had the high dry matter. Now, they weren't very productive in terms of yield. Uh, they degenerated over the years. So we, but we could include them as parents in the breeding process. So I think it was a recognition of the great need, and it was a recognition that we did, you know, sweet potato is such a diverse crop, you know, it's a matter of getting the right variety for the right agroecology for the right consumer preferences. So it's a numbers game in breeding, but the diversity, the natural diversity in the germplasm is enormous. Let, 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 let me take a step back. Vitamin A deficiency was a huge problem in sub-Saharan Africa. But that was being treated, as it were, with, with supplementation. I mean, you can give kids vitamin A supplements and, and it seems to work. So what was the impetus to compete with vitamin A supplementation by promoting orange flesh sweet potatoes? Well, I always argue that it's not competition, it's complementarity. Uh, vitamin A supplements are high-dose vitamin A, pure retinol, uh, that are given out every six months from the time the child turns six months until they're five years of age. They really have a strong protective effect for two months and then it gradually descends. So by the end of four months, it's pretty well gone. Um, whereas if you're having a food in your food system, you hope that food would be available to eat um, ideally year-round or at least seasonally uh, and with storage year-round. So I see the two things as complementary. Um, and then the other point is that we saw, particularly in the work I was doing in Mozambique, uh, you know, poor people are actually very busy, right? And so women tend to take their children during the first year of, of life on a monthly basis to the health clinic, driven by the fact that during the first year of life, vaccines are given out. And then if you look at the health data in most places after year one, you know, that drops off a lot. And the only time women are really taking to their children to the clinic is when they fall ill, and then they can get their vitamin A capsule if they happen to be in the right cycle. Right. I also feel that you have to take this multiple approach, right? Uh, because everybody should be having more vitamin A in their diet. If you look at the studies that have been done on availability of foods rich in vitamin A in the diet among the different continents, Africa is the lowest. And then I always mention that sweet potato, even though we talk a lot about 
the beta carotene because it's so rich in beta carotene and just one small root can meet the daily needs of a young child. It has many other micronutrients. You know, it's a good source of vitamin C, E, and K, and many B vitamins. It has magnesium and potassium. The leaves are a rich source of lutein. You know, no part of this crop you know, can go to waste. I mean, you can use the leaves, the roots, everything. And so just in terms of improving the food system, getting more people eating this food on a regular basis is just good nutrition. You, you said that um, getting the funding for the first study of the effect on vitamin A, you had to ask 21 donors. Uh, I, I'm just wondering, what kinds of reasons did they give to say no? And did any of them who said no, did they eventually come around? It really was a period where there was not much multi-sectoral work going on. So nutrition tended to be in the health sector, so you'd go to see the health people and they say, well, this is really an agricultural proposal. Go to the ag people. You go to the ag people and they say, well, you know, this is really a health intervention. Go to the health people. And they're, they weren't working across their borders. They weren't working across uh, these lines. And so you can imagine it was a long process. I rewrote the proposal several times trying to address these, be more appealing to one particular donor. But finally, it was um, uh, when I went with the head of the nutrition division of Mozambique uh, at a conference in Durban, South Africa, to visit uh, Vinkatesh Manar of the Micronutrient Initiative. And we made uh, describing uh, how we saw integrated ag nutrition working with a marketing component as well. And he sat there and he listened carefully and he said, you know, this is a food-based approach that makes sense, and I think it could work. Micronutrient Initiative of Canada got on board, and really that was the breakthrough, to get somebody who saw what we were trying to do in, in terms of doing integrated ag nutrition. Now, these days, a lot of people are involved in integrated ag nutrition, but this was back in, you know, 2000, 2001, you know, it wasn't uh, a mainstream idea to be having agriculture serve nutrition, which seems bizarre, <laughs> but that's the reality because yeah. the nutrition community was very caught up in saying that we can address micronutrient malnutrition through capsules and other methods. Um, so really getting that breakthrough, then he provided... Uh, about two-thirds of the funding. And then two of the donors I'd approached earlier who had liked the idea but didn't have uh, a lot of resources that they could put into it came on board, namely the Rockefeller Foundation and USAID based out of the Washington, D.C. office. So having those three donors together, we were able to proceed and, and conduct the study. That first study provided some evidence that orange-fleshed sweet potatoes could improve nutrition, and that encouraged other donors to fund more, bigger studies. The crucial point, though, is to get governments on board, and many of the countries in sub-Saharan Africa were more focused on their big export crops. Until, that is, Jan and her colleagues developed industrial uses for those orange sweet potatoes. What I've found has really excited the countries themselves is the potential to diversify the use of sweet potato um, in the sense that our work 
that's been done with the sweet potato puree, the boiled and mashed sweet potato as a partial wheat flour substitution really does appeal to a lot of policymakers. One, because they see this is something the private sector can engage in more fully. And two, they see it as saving foreign exchange because a lot of wheat flour in African countries is imported since in many places it's difficult to grow wheat. And the question of evidence that eating orange flesh sweet potato will indeed get rid of this um, micronutrient deficiency of vitamin A, that's, that's no longer a question. I mean, you, it's, it's perfectly clear now, is it, that orange flesh sweet potato provides the vitamin A that people need and all the other micronutrients you mentioned. Yes, we're considered being the crop that has one of the strongest evidence base uh, to to draw on because there was a run by the South African um, Medical Research Institute. They did a very controlled study with school children uh, comparing uh, orange flesh sweet potato with white sweet sweet potato and saw the increase in the storage of vitamin A in the liver. And then there was a study that I led in Mozambique where, you know, the introduction combined with nutrition education provided the evidence that we could impact a young child vitamin A status. And then following that, there was a randomized controlled trial study trying to go to scale to 24,000 households in Mozambique and in Uganda. And again, we were able to show the increase in vitamin A intakes, in this case, in young children as well as their mothers, And they did the blood work again in Uganda this time, and they showed some impact on vitamin A status among young children. So that's a pretty strong evidence base. But I would argue for really maximizing impact on nutrition, you need to have both the introduction of the orange flesh sweet potato and the nutrition education component at the community level. Because really, we don't just talk about orange flesh sweet potato. You know, we're really trying to improve young child nutrition, and therefore we bring in all the other foods that should be making up a balanced diet and how those foods should be fed. Um, It was very interesting when I was working in central Mozambique in the initial days that children weren't fed papaya because mothers thought papaya was making them sick because it turned their feces orange-ish. (laughs) Um, And so it's just giving people the knowledge that, no, actually, that's very good. No problems. Again, you're getting a food, uh, a fruit tree that's one of the easiest fruit trees to grow. That was all over the place, but they weren't using it for young child nutrition. And that's why I say, you know, the message is the nutrition education component goes along with the introduction of orange flesh sweet potatoes. And you can bring in other crops as well. Because we, what we want to do is improve the household's ability to improve their own diets. And in the rural areas, are most people growing the sweet potatoes for their own families, or is it more of a, of a commercial crop? Well, again, you know, it's a vast continent with very different conditions in different locations. I think in, you know, eastern central Africa, you often find that the principal use is as a food security crop, but then you have certain pockets. For example, there's this one area in western Kenya where the farmers are very commercial, and they treat it as a commercial crop, 
and they're supplying the markets in Nairobi and Mombasa. And so it does vary a lot by the areas you're in and what the linkages are to markets. And what we find over time as we introduce the crop and people can produce a surplus, they want to be able to sell that surplus. So one of the things we really invest in is what we call demand creation campaigns, because you have to have the urban consumers aware of the benefits of this crop to create that market. And some countries, it's easier to break into those markets than others, because obviously you're up against the varieties that they've been used to buying. And the nutrition we found, and studies have been done to show this, when people have more nutrition information, they're more likely to try and buy and test the new orange flesh sweet potato varieties. And how important was it to all of these efforts for the nutrition education, for the for the farmers to be growing it, for the mothers to be using it. How important was it that this was a sort of a brightly colored orange variety or several varieties? Um, well, you know, orange turns out to be a wonderful color to promote nutrition. We tend to use patterns of orange and green, green for the leaves and orange. And we had a huge, as part of our demand creation campaign, we really exploited that. Um, we had uh, marketing stalls painted in orange. The vehicles are orange. We have a lot of orange uh, clothing. You know, the women wear these pieces of cloth in many places, capulanas. And we put messages on about the orange flesh sweet potato onto those capulanas, T-shirts, uh, radio programs. But the orange is a wonderful color it actually turned out to be quite an advantage. Now, I, uh, I tell you, the first question we would get in every country we worked in, when people saw the different color, they would say, is it a GMO? You know, <laughs> unfortunately, in sub-Saharan Africa, there are a lot of people that are afraid of GMOs. Then you'd have to go back in and explain, no, this is conventionally bred, the diversity that naturally exists in sweet potato, you know, to ease the fears. So definitely people picked up that this color is different, but in general, the color is really loved. And uh, so it's really been a marketing tool for us. But it's interesting that you raise the question of, of both the color and the GMOs. I mean, I, I, I don't want to get into golden rice here. That's way too difficult for me. But a lot of the other biofortification crops, there's no way of knowing that a bean, or, or whatever it might be, that it is in fact high in whatever it's supposed to be high in. I, I just wonder whether orange flesh sweet potato is not maybe too easy and that there are going to be all sorts of problems for farmers and others where you can't see the difference. Well, you know, that's an interesting question because initially when the movement started, it said... Well, you know, the easiest ones to introduce will be the ones without a, what we call a visible trait. And those will be easier to introduce because as long as the varieties are more competitive than the local varieties, they'll just easily f go into the food system and we won't have to do much promotion. You have to be able to outperform uh, the local varieties if you're going to really have high levels of uh, adoption. Okay. But we found that the orange trait has been a very uh, significant marketing tool, 
And yes, it probably, you still have to have, and you know, these are these lessons learned, you still have to be able to beat the local variety in terms of performance because farmers are farmers. Um, and if it's really going to be adopted on a wide scale, you have to at least match the yields of the existing varieties. So it's, it's you know, I, I think um, it's a very interesting issue. Do you see the biofortified crop as an entry point for educating people for better nutrition, or do you see the easiest way to go is having a biofortified crop that looks like a biofortified bean that looks like any other bean, and it's just being adopted based on its agronomic characteristics. Do you have any idea of, of what it's cost so far to get people in, what, 13, 15 African countries using sweet potato? Well, again, it depends on what level you're doing it at, right? And this is what I'm saying. It's a combined approach. In the, uh, the study reaching end users, when I, the one I mentioned earlier where we were scaling to 24,000 households, the cost per direct beneficiary was, you know, $86 in Mozambique. And in Uganda, it was 56. Uganda is a much more densely populated country. But then, of course, you have all the spillover effects to neighbors, and that's much cheaper, of course, but they may not be getting, uh, you know, the nutrition education component. They're probably receiving the vines and then hearing messages on the radio. Now, if you just go out and do mass distributions, like in a post-emergency response, in, in those kind of cases, we might do some very limited nutrition awareness raising with community theater or radio and vine distribution, then your cost per beneficiary household goes way down, you know, maybe 5 to $10 per household. And that's the conundrum, right? Uh, that's the challenge because we know we get our greatest nutritional impact when we do uh, the combined uh, agriculture, nutrition, education intervention. Right. And, and everybody's, the pressure on us is how do we make that as cheap as possible per direct beneficiary. But at the end of the day, the question I always raise is, well, do you want to just have households eating orange flesh sweet potato, or do you really want it to make a difference to young child nutrition? And if we're going to make a difference to young child nutrition, there has to be some investment in uh, behavioral change to improve young child feeding practices. And so that is the, the, the million-dollar question. One of the things I'm really convinced now that we need to be doing in, um, for the long-term impact is really why do we have to do this community-level nutrition education? It's because no nutrition is taught in schools. And so now what we're doing is really pushing for the integration of nutrition education into primary schools in Africa. We've done some interesting work in Uganda developing school books with the primary school teachers. In the, the short growing period of four to five months of sweet potato fits in very nicely with the school term. We've had children carrying the vines back to the home. And really in the long term, what we need to look at and understand is that knowledge about nutrition should be a life skill. And when somebody leaves, I think, primary school, they should have the basic knowledge. And then this, this cost of delivering 
nutritious foods per household will go down because we aren't having to deal or we aren't having to address a lot of lack of knowledge about how to appropriately use these foods. That's, that's, that's a very interesting approach. It's sort of the ultimate of that proverb about teaching a person to fish. You, you've been at this now for over 25 years. Was there a point at which you thought, yeah, this, this could work, this is actually going to work? Well, I, you know, it was very early on when I became committed to this idea, uh, when I was a postdoc in 1995, and I was out in the field, and I was able to raise with the Kenyan Agriculture Research Institute, we got money from the International Center for Research on Women, to do the initial work on the orange flesh sweet potato in western Kenya. And we just set up, you know, 10 women's groups that were getting agriculture only and 10 women's groups that were getting the the ag plus nutrition education and, and looking at those differences. And for me, when I saw the young children eating the sweet potato, it was a no-brainer. These kids love orange flesh sweet potato. So if you have your main target group liking the product, <laughs> you've got a winner. It is a no-brainer intervention for sub-Saharan Africa because here's a crop that basically any class of farmer can grow. And it wasn't getting the attention that it was due because it's seen as a poor rural woman's crop. It's not seen as a modern crop. And that was its image in sub-Saharan Africa. Now it's coming back on the scene mm -hmm. because you've got a crop that's ready in three to five months, depending on the variety. We have very unpredictable seasons now. It has flexible planting and harvest times. So now really, in the, in, in, as we're seeing the impact of climate change, sweet potato now is not seen as this poor person's crop, but it's seen really as the sort of climate smart, nutritious crop. Jan Lowe. And from those first trials of a few tens of families, by last year, more than six million households had been introduced to orange-fleshed sweet potato. There's more to be done, for sure, but if orange-fleshed sweet potato is now seen as a crop for the future in Africa, it's down not just to Jan, who saw its potential, but to all the other people who've worked with her over the past 25 years to get it to this point. And there's a terrific review of all the effort that took in a recently published paper which I'll link to in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. And I have to confess that I'm on the side of those African adults. I wish the sweet potatoes we get here were just a little bit less watery. I've also been persuaded, after many attempts, to create a transcript for the podcast. That'll be in the show notes too. It's just an experiment for now, so I need feedback if you find it useful and would like me to continue. Anyway, that's it for another episode. My thanks to Jan Lowe for her time and expertise, and to all of you who support the podcast with a donation. If you're not yet one of them, please consider going to eatthispodcast.com slash supporters and getting a season ticket. For now, though, from me, Jeremy Churfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.